The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Monday, July 9th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is July 9th, right? So I'll be announcing it the Monday after July 4th. It's at the 11th. Announce it specifically on the 11th. No, no, no. It's July 9th, the Monday since since Independence Day was a Wednesday. Today is July 9th. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to criticize Trump. Well, you know, usually we do. But there is one criticism of Trump that I don't think will change any minds. It is this. This was Senator Richard Blumenthal on this week. Unfortunately, and I really mean unfortunately, I think that some of the more dire views of what we sacrificed in this reality show that the president conducted are now coming true. We made concessions. There, Richard Blumenthal dismissively used the phrase reality show to describe the president's Korean dealings. Now here is Chris Coons on Face the Nation. So different Sunday show, different senator, same party, same comparison. Uh, My concern, Margaret, uh, is that the Singapore summit last month was really not much more than a reality TV handshake summit that didn't really accomplish much in terms of getting North Korea to commit to verifiable and irreversible denuclearization. So then even diplomacy, Trump's announcement of Supreme Court nominee to be held at 9 p.m. tonight is being dismissed as a reality show. People, people of America specifically people of America who are demographically older and more highbrow than your fellow Americans. Reality show is not something to dismiss. We're past that. I will not defend the genre, but if you're trying to appeal to the sensibilities of most people, know this. Reality shows are the vernacular of the United States. You are not tarring President Trump with the label reality show. You're praising him with it. It would be as if it were 1961 and Nixon went around deriding Kennedy as some sort of rock and roll president. Reality shows are how we communicate. And basically, they're how Trump won the election. It's not like people don't know or realize that. In fact, the reality show frame probably allows Trump more latitude to lie, cheat, steal, engage in drama, because that's what goes on on reality shows. It's, it's priced into the price of Trump. See, I think what we should be doing is calling him out whenever he engages in some real non-reality show behavior, you know, where it gets too real or depressing. He's separating little children from their mothers at the border. I would not watch a reality show on that. He is allowing Wilbur Ross, who's already a billionaire, to trade on insider information. How's that a reality show? You promised us a reality show. This is getting too real. Cancel the reality show. Anyway... What this has all been is a rationally educated American trying to reach distracted, dopamine-addicted, under-informed American. This has been part 3024 of that series. On the show today, I spiel about people trapped in caves. It is a blast from my past, but not so big a blast that we can't extract some knowledge from the rubble. But first, Matthew Dix is a storyteller extraordinaire. Extraordinaire encompasses lots of things, right? But in Matt's case... It's almost easier to just rule out what he doesn't do. He is a just regular. He has a new book out. And here we talk technique and steal a little from Bruce Springsteen. He is 
or was dubbed on this show for many years the most interesting man in the world. I'm beginning to think that Matthew Dix may or may not be, but he is certainly one of the best at telling his own story of being interesting, and now he could help you too. He gave this lesson for just listeners. We were in early. There is a book out now that Matthew Dix, the 36-time Moth Story Slam champion and five-time Grand Slam champion, has written. The book is called Story Worthy. Engage, teach, persuade, and change your life through the power of storytelling. Matt, what's up? Well, I still tell my wife that I'm the most interesting man. Yes. I use it constantly, <laughs> and she still tells me to mow the lawn. So. What, do you, what do you think the Dosakis guy has to go through? Same thing, right? It's probably the same thing, yeah. although I think he gets more credibility because I only have the pesca seal of approval. That's right. It's not as strong. Yeah, but then again, his was he was just propped up there by uh, a multinational ad agency, and his version of interesting was like, you know, wrestling an iguana or something. It's true, but if a multinational ad agency wants to help me out in some yeah. way, I'm more than willing to accept that. To me, you meet a guy and this guy is telling you, you know what I once did? I was on the beaches and there was a gila monster and I breathed <laughs> life into it. You say, okay, but then you say, oh, I put a satchel of money on the top of my car, drove away and was arrested for stealing with the, from the McDonald's. I'd rather hear the second story. Uh, I would as well. But I didn't tell it right. No, but that's fine. A lot of people, all my friends, ruin my stories constantly by yeah. saying, you know, tell them about the time you were arrested for the crime you didn't commit and you almost confessed. <laughs> oh, no. And I say, well, I think you just did <laughs> in a very bad way. But how are you supposed to? You've had to do this. You tell a story on the moth and maybe how many times you've been on the moth radio hour? Uh, eight or nine times. Okay, and they have to give a little slug but not give it away. Are they right. good at that? Do you work with them on that? They do a good job of it. So what's They're, the sort of thing they say? Tell me, what, what's one of the stories? I think I'm probably familiar with all your moth stories and how did they describe it? Uh, well, I have the story of the time I was in a car accident. Yeah. They say that in moments like this, people, time will like freeze for them or slow down, and it is absolutely true. In the three seconds it takes before our two cars hit head on, I have exactly three thoughts. The first is, I'm not wearing my seatbelt, and I always wear my seatbelt. But in the excitement of buying Christmas presents and the rush to get home, I've forgotten on the worst day of my life to forget. My second thought is, in moments like this, I've been told to steer into the skid, but it occurs to me, I don't know what the hell that really means. <laughs> and I still don't know to this day. And my third thought is just one sentence. It's five words long, and I say it aloud. This is going to suck. And it does. So, you know, I would say it's something about Matthew Dix, you know, experiences a near-death event, but it turns out that's not the most important thing that happened that day. Oh, yeah. That's good. And then you want to hear what the next thing is. And the waiting room is now filling up with 16 and 17 and 18-year-old kids and one 14-year-old boy. And my friend Benji is the first one to arrive. And they can't come into the emergency room to see me because they're not family, but they roll my gurney to the other side of the emergency room and they open a door. And one by one, each one of my friends stands in the door and they wave, and they give me the thumbs up, and they say stupid things to make me laugh. So you've written how many? Four fiction books? That yes. Been, yeah, so I've read two of them, including Unexpectedly Milo, about the guy who's obsessed with jam jars. <laughs> Will your first scene, your first chapter from a novel, is that roughly analogous to the first paragraph, the first few lines of a story in some way? Because it doesn't seem so, necessarily. It adheres to some of the rules that I have, yeah. which is like, Start that story right away. Yeah. Get us into motion. Have things happening. People feel better when a story is 
you know, moving forward in a positive way. It almost feels better to jump into a story 10 minutes after it began Mm -hmm. than to begin right at that starting point. You're a big guy. I'm so much advice about momentum and lack of digressions. And we think of good storytelling as, you know, the the uncle with the uh, Irish brogue who takes you in all directions and you don't know where you landed. And maybe that's entertaining, but that to you is not good storytelling. People probably go to your workshops, say, oh, I'm not a natural storyteller. But it's probably the hardest for the person who thinks he is a natural storyteller to cut away all the extraneous stuff. It's one of the hardest things. And, you know, one of And it's like, Jim, it's not that it's not funny. It's just not the story. Exactly. So often a storyteller says, but it gets me a laugh. And I say, well, Jim, I can get a laugh out of anything if I really want to. But that's not the goal here. The goal is to move someone emotionally and remain stuck inside them for as long as possible. I was just doing a workshop with a woman, with a group of people, and a woman, when I finished the story, she said, well, that's a story about a bad decision you made, but how does that, like, teach me a lesson? And I said, well, first of all, stories don't have to teach lessons. They're just going to engage you and connect us. I said, but if you're looking for a lesson, how about the lesson being we're not alone? We all make terrible decisions. And then she started to cry (laughs) because she understood. She you're not alone, lady. You made a bad decision today, and I made a bad decision, and we're together in it. In the book, and uh, as we've talked, and I'm sure in your talk, you, you always use movies as the paradigm for how to tell a story. But you write books, and in fact, you know, people should know you're a wedding DJ, and you're a teacher, and you're a lecturer. The one thing you don't do is make movies, to my knowledge. Have you? I have screenplays that are circulating around Hollywood now. Right. And all my novels are currently optioned for film. Right. Do you think, though, that before movies existed, when Homer told his stories or, you know, man told stories around the campfire, they were as cinematic? Have we been conditioned to think that way because we watch movies? Or is it more that movies unfold in that way because there's something about the human condition that, you know, craves that sort of visual stimuli? I think that the best storytellers before movies were probably speaking cinematically. Yeah, although images. that term didn't... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the difference just between someone stopping a story and saying, hey, let me tell you a little bit about my uncle before the story moves forward. Well, at that point, you're not telling a story anymore. You're lecturing about your uncle, and all that picture in my head that you had created a moment ago is now gone, and I'm staring at you. And it breaks the, it breaks the movie. I think the best storytellers of the past were probably maintaining cinema throughout. I, I just saw the Springsteen on Broadway show. Ugh. Now, we've seen Springsteen together. We have. There are a couple things I want to ask you, because I was thinking a lot about what he says explicitly and how he does what he does. So at one point, and if you're going to see the show and don't want to know anything, I would skip this next few minutes. But at one point, he says, I don't think we go to concerts or to see a music show to be told something. We go to be reminded of something. And I thought that was really interesting and really powerful. And I immediately, because of how I think, connected it to political speech. And I think probably a great political speech will never tell you anything, but will remind you of something. You know, so Barack Obama says something and it reminds his audience of who he can be. And Donald Trump says something and it reminds his audience of, you know, some nationalism or who we think we are. But do you think that's true for storytelling in general? People want to be reminded of something as opposed to told something. Absolutely. I mean... I'm not surprised Springsteen was brilliant in this regard. If I tell the story of the time I was in the car accident and died on the side of the road, if I make my story about that, then I'm telling you something because you haven't experienced it, so I'm just providing you with information. So I can't make the story about something you will never connect to. So instead, that story becomes something about my parents letting me down and my friends picking me up. 
And in making it about that, my goal is for you to be reminded about a time when maybe your parents also let you down Mm -hmm. or a time when your friends stood up for you in a way that surprised you and was beautiful. I try to find universal themes that will connect to as many people as possible. And I think doing that is really just reminding them of, I was hungry as a boy. You understand that because you've been hungry for something in your life. Or I carried a secret for a long time and my wife uncovered it you probably also carry a secret. And maybe you're still holding it, and it's reminding you that that secret still exists in you. Now, when Springsteen started, this is something about word choice and density. When Springsteen started, the words were really dense and Baroque and, you know, jamming a lot of syllables. I mean, the first line in his first album from Guided by the Light is, you know, Madman Drummers, Bummers, Indian in the Summers, and a Teenage Diplomat. So that is a lot of words. But if you listen to Kendrick Lamar, he's thrown a lot of words at you, and he's recognized as a great storyteller. And, uh, won a a Pulitzer for poetry. But I think later Springsteen, very sparse, and he lets you do the work. There's a power in that. Um, Do you have a philosophy on that? I do. I say that the difference between my stories on stage and my books, my books are like lakes. You get to control the speed in which you receive the content. The water always stays the same. You can take a year to read my book. You can step out and talk to somebody about it. You can look up a word in a dictionary. Everything remains the same. But if I'm telling a story or Springsteen singing something, it's a river. and <laughs> Literally. It's a river, yes. Of his oh. fourth album. <laughs> I meant that. And Sorry, sorry. Literally in the case of his fifth album. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so as I'm speaking, you're in the river with me. And if I say something, if I use language that is Baroque or I say something that is confusing or yeah. I'm unintentionally ambiguous, yeah. and you have to step out of my river for a moment to think about what I've just said— I feel like that when you step back in, you're always behind. I am always somewhere ahead, and you're always trying to catch up, and Mm. I don't think you ever really can. Okay, but then assess a guy like me. Maybe I think I do that. I'm the river, and I go fast, and if people miss it, I guess some people in my audience say they enjoy it, but if I was public speaking uh, with a crowd who didn't know me, I'd probably go slower. But what about the joy people take in Robin Williams or, you know, some rapper with amazing flow? Yeah, I'm actually right now listening to the Robin Williams biography. Yeah. And, no, I think that there's a problem with that that rapid speech. I I don't think it's necessarily bad for you because you're not telling stories. Mm -hmm. You're providing information. Right. But if Williams is on stage and he's doing all that, insanity that he did so rapidly, I still feel like you leave the theater and you don't have a sense of who he is. In fact, that whole book is about how Robin Williams spends his whole life trying to deflect who he is through all of these voices. And so you leave the theater and you think Robin Williams is amazing. He's so fast. He's so improvisational. But then three days later, you say, well, what was he talking about? And you would say, well, he did a great Reagan impression Mm -hmm. and he was talking about cocaine But he hasn't really lodged anything in your heart that's going to remain that substantial. You're not going to walk away and say, well, let me tell you the thing I know about Robin Williams now that I didn't know before. You know, that doesn't happen for him, I don't think. I think you have a wonderful time in the moment, but the lasting effect is not as strong as if you 
take things a little slower, a little sparser, and you make sure everyone's with you at all times. Matthew Dix is, oh, so many things. Uh, let's put it this way. The about the author note at the uh, back of this book, Storyworthy, is the most superfluous two pages you'll ever read. I don't know if I've ever seen it. That's amazing. I'll have to read it when we're done. I mean, you just read this entire book about the author, and then we find out that you're an internationally best-selling author and the author of a rock opera, and you've written for everything from Reader's Digest to the Hartford Current to the Christian Science Monitor. And you're a West Hartford Teacher of the Year, and the TED Talks and the Grand Slams, and the creators of, and the creator and co-host of Boy vs. Girl podcast, and the new podcast with Alicia, and of course, the author of Storyworthy: Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. The world has been riveted by the story of the Thai soccer team trapped in a cave. And we find now that they're slowly being rescued by scuba divers and Thai Navy SEALs. It's not surprising. People, generally people outside of holes, are really into stories of people in holes. Remember the Chilean miners from a few years back? A group of miners trapped underground for 17 days are still alive. The men drill that it's hoped will save the lives of 33 miners trapped half a mile underground in Chile. And before that, baby Jessica, and before that, well, well, I invite you to come with me. A journey that begins almost 100 years ago. I reported this in the early aughts for On the Media... You will be able to sense that I used more careful phrasing and an NPR-ish pace. Still, it is quite good. Enjoy this story of people in holes. Man, or men, or sometimes babies trapped underground, has been a story for as long as people have been telling stories, or at least selling them in newspapers or broadcasting them. There was the case of Floyd Collins. You never heard of Floyd Collins? That's Kirk Douglas in the 1951 movie Ace in the Hole. He plays a journalist who stumbles across a man trapped in a cave. Here he reminds a cub reporter about a similar story. Floyd Collins, doesn't that ring a bell? No, not to me it doesn't. 1925, Kentucky, a guy pinned way down in that cave. One of the biggest stories that ever broke. Front page in every paper in the country for weeks. Maybe I did hear about it. Maybe you heard that a reporter on the Louisville paper crawled in for the story and came out with a Pulitzer Prize. It's true. The 1926 Pulitzer Prize for Reporting was awarded to William Burke Miller of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Miller, known as Skeets, became a character in the 1995 musical Floyd Collins, which dealt with the drama in the cave and the chaos in the newsroom. K City, comma, capital K, capital Y, February 4th. According to Skeets Miller, comma, Collins is quickly slipping into a state of deep despair. Asking for milk. The trapped man was heard to cry out, folks, get me out of here, comma, even if you have to tear my foot off. Exclamation, close the Floyd is reported to be in a state of delirium, conversing with the cave crickets and even begging them to hurry, 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 call me out. A little more than a decade after Floyd Collins, reporter J. Frank Willis of the Canadian Radio Commission covered the collapse of the Moose River Mine, in Nova Scotia, Canada. It is a broken country down here, drab and desolate. A country of scrub and second growth, of rock. Rock, relentless, hard, cruel hard. It is against rock of this sort that miners for the past week have fought and fought, grim-lipped, 
determined, and they're winning their fight. Inch by inch, the rock is retreating. Today, news networks never leave these stories. Even if little is happening on the scene, time will be filled with talking heads, recovery experts, and in the absence of that, speculation. Willis, however, was fiercely committed to the notion that only that which was newsworthy should be broadcast. As a rumor has gone abroad and has been published as a fact that the mine is in danger of caving in, this is absolutely not true. We're standing here, we can spit into this pit, and yet from thousands of miles away, people are contradicting what we have to say. This must stop. I'm stopping these broadcasts now until something definite happens. One man died, two survived. The Moose River cave-in was one of the first times that radio displayed its power to connect with listeners on a real-life event occurring in real time. A decade later, TV would demonstrate that ability in its coverage of yet another person trapped in a hole. In 1949, three-year-old Kathy Fiscus fell into a well near Los Angeles. Local station KTLA's round-the-clock coverage was groundbreaking in that it proved TV could find ample drama outside the scripted world of the studio. In fact, it was a KTLA reporter who informed her family that Kathy had died. Her grave marker reads, A little girl who brought the world together for a moment. Almost 40 years later, there was another moment. Another little girl was trapped in a well, Jessica McClure. Mary Alice Williams was one of CNN's primary anchors in 1987. We were the only ones on the air when this 18-month-old baby girl fell into a well. And suddenly, all the huge international stories melted away. Of course, many, many hours later, the broadcast networks caught on to the drama of this event. We were still rather uh, looked down on by the other networks. They didn't consider us to be equals. Bob Fernad was CNN's vice president and senior producer during the Jessica McClure rescue. Our ratings shot up as people left the three broadcast networks, assuming correctly so that they do the story and then go back to their regular programming and that we'd stay with it. And our ratings spiked, and for the first time, we beat the three broadcast networks in eyeballs. And that's what made the Jessica McClure story a watershed for CNN. It confirmed what was an operating theory, that this new way of covering a story, wall-to-wall, was the formula for success. However, former anchor Mary Alice Williams thinks cable news took the wrong lesson from the little girl in the well. What it led to was the wall-to-wall coverage of O.J. Simpson. And the motive for watching O.J. was pure prurience. There was no other reason. It was a collective schadenfreude. Look how the mighty have fallen. Baby Jessica wasn't that. It was the opposite. It was a collective hope, a collective prayer to save a person's life, a baby's life. Such is the fine line in TV news between pathos and bathos, between bathos and exploitation. It's not a happily ever after story for the rest of the Jessica McClure participants either. Jessica herself still lives in Texas, plays the French horn, and makes A's and B's in school. She has a trust fund in excess of $1 million. The only interview she does is with Ladies Home Journal, which recently revealed that Jessica has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Her parents, teenagers at the time, divorced. Her rescuer, Robert O'Donnell, couldn't handle the stress of having been a hero in the world's eyes, only to see the spotlight snatched away so quickly. He bored co-workers with endless stories of his time in the hole, squabbled with fellow rescuers over payment for the TV movie. 
developed dependence on prescription painkillers, and in 1995 took his own life with a shotgun blast to the head. Perhaps most interesting is what happened to Skeets Miller, who interviewed Floyd Collins in 1925. He left Louisville soon after he won his Pulitzer and moved to radio. By 1947, he was at NBC, where he served as assignment editor for the company's newest venture, television. For On the Media, I'm Mike Pesca. That's it for today's show. As always, thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not yet a member, feel some shame, then go to slate.com slash just plus. It'll only cost you $35, and you'll get ad-free versions of this show, and maybe, if you're lucky, ones without singing. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, Pierre Bienname, and edited by Brooke. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He knows the difference between pathos and bathos, but is still trying to figure out bupkis and pubkis. The gist. Dateline, New York City, February 9th, 1996. Headline, Floyd Collins to close. Reason, these aren't songs. No one cares about rhyming. If this counts as a musical, I'm Andrew Lloyd freaking Weber. Oomperu, depperu, depperu, and thanks for listening.